always got utter belief in it. And somehow she's found the acceleration. Welcome to the best running-related podcast on planet Earth, Track Talk. On this week's show, Jakob Ingebrigtsen is back, baby. Did you guys see that 2,000-meter world record? Josh Kerr certainly did, because after winning the 5th Avenue Mile, he probably begged out of the Diamond League final. How weak is him ducking Jakob Ingebrigtsen? Jakob wasn't the only person to run fast in Brussels. Andy Wiley has become the youngest American woman under four flat, breaking Jenny Simpson's hallowed collegiate record. Grant Fisher has run 7.33 in Rovereto. USATF board member Jim Estes is suing Max Siegel and USATF for defamation and negligence. Plus, Mo Farah has retired. Where does he rank among the all-time great distance runners? And controversy at the Harvard-Yale-Princeton meet has Rojo's beloved Princeton Tigers taken load management too far and made a mockery of the sport. All of that and more this week's show. Super pumped Robert Johnson here, welcoming everyone to the audio version of Let's Run.com. Run.com is the home of running. You should be going each and every day to get your running news. We know some of you are busy, so we give it to you on the podcast so you can stay up to date while you drive around, take care of your kids, go to work, etc. If you want a second podcast, sometimes a third or fourth every week, join the supporters club today. Let's Run.com slash subscribe. Pick up the phone. Unlike Facebook, unlike Twitter, we want to hear from you. 844-LET'S-RUN, 844-538-7786. John Weldon, I'm super excited. I'm one step closer to $16,000. How are you guys doing? Can you elaborate? One step closer to $16,000? Every week, I get some nonsense from you and Weldon texting each other about betting ideas and this and that. Betting just preys on the, on the poor people I've never understood why people think it's a good business model. People only have so much money to blow, but they were offering a free $200 bet if I made a bet on the Ravens game this weekend. I bet $25 for the Ravens to win. I got that back. Even money, they threw out the line, so that was nice. But then they gave me $200 worth of free bets, and I've placed the vast majority on that on the Baltimore Orioles to win the World Series and the Baltimore Ravens to win the Super Bowl. Put, I think, at least $100 on that. Wait, parlayed together or separate bets? Parlayed together. Ah, uh, yes. So you, you said gambling, preying on the who, Robert? Yeah, you're convinced that this one's going to strike it rich. Until our beloved running back pulled out his Achilles tight end. That is really tough for J.K. Dobbins. He's had so many injuries and then first game. Then What about Jets fans last night? Four snaps in. It reminds me of... 2008, I was there. Patriots, Chiefs, week one. Tom Brady coming off a 16-0 season, 50 touchdown passes, MVP. Goes down, season-ending knee injury. We had to deal with Matt Castle at quarterback. Still went 11-5, and missed the playoffs. But anyway, you guys didn't turn in. Tune in to listen to us talk about football. You tuned in to listen to us talk about track and field. We've got the Diamond League final in the United States this weekend, Saturday and Sunday. We will have... A number of big stars will be there, but a number of big stars will also not be there. I guess we need to start with Jakob Ingebrigtsen because he's doubling up. He's not just doing the Bowman Mile on Saturday. He's coming back for the 3,000 on Sunday. And I suppose we can get into that in a minute, but should we talk about this 2,000-meter world record, Robert? We did break it down at great length 
for our supporters club members on the Friday 15, let's run.com slash subscribe if you want to get access to that and every Friday 15 podcast. But it's his first outdoor world record. He's kind of going at Hisham Elgarouge, but sort of taking a measured approach. He's getting the least prestigious of Hisham Elgarouge's world records, which is the 2K. The mile and the 1500 is still to come. It was impressive how he did this, though. Set the pacing lights for a little slower at the start, 57s instead of 56s, but looked full of run that last lap, closes in 55 flat, 443. Wasn't really any doubt over the final 200 meters that he would get it. He looked fantastic. How impressed were you by the run, his first since the World Championships? Super impressed. What a machine. What a badass. What a great person to have in the sport. And what an amazing season he's had. European indoor gold. Diamond League wins. Rabat. Oslo. Lausanne. World records or world's best in the two mile in Paris, if you want to call it that. World record in Brussels. World championship gold in the 5,000. World championship silver in the 1,500. Diamond League win in Silesia in a European... 1500 meter record didn't include that i missed another one i mean big meets all the time amazing performances all the time but this 443 for 2000 meters i mean you're going through the mile in 349 and then kicking a 54 off that yeah the way i like to contextualize it robert is he ran his last 1600 meters in 346.0 which is like you know, and he ran a 57 to start that thing. So, yeah, it was super impressive run. I mean, my, I'm basically convinced he can close in 55-0 off of any pace at any distance uh, at this point. Yeah, that was, yeah, super, super great run. And I'm glad that he's still out there. Like, he won a gold in the 5,000 and a silver in the 1,500. He could have very easily said, hey, I've been running. I ran the Euro indoors. In March, I ran all these diamond leagues. He kind of just call it a season, but this is why Jakob Ingemixen is great for the sport. He likes to run a lot. He's going to show up and run not just one race of the diamond league final, but two. That's what we want to see our great athletes do. I'm, it was a great performance, and I'm excited for more of the same this weekend in Eugene. And I love the confidence slash arrogance coming back. This one wasn't a difficult record, is what he said. I mean, 2000 might be his wheelhouse. But did you see the margin of victory, anybody? It was like four seconds, right? No, it was 5.01 seconds. And what do we say? We say you need a second a lap to make sure you're going to win Worlds. Look, to me, this confirms he would have won Worlds if he hadn't been sick. People are debating him, making up excuses, blah, blah, blah. This guy's in supreme form. He barely won the 5,000. It was the year before he killed everybody in the 5,000. You know, it's just, I think he's good enough to do it. He's a little bit vulnerable because of speed. But if Norv Nordas is getting third in the, in the Diamond League, in the World Championship 1500 with no, with less speed than Jakob, I think Jakob's good enough to, to beat everybody from the front next year. And I hope he does it. John's going to say he doesn't root for people. Journalists don't root. I'm halftime fan. I'm three-quarters of the time fan, one-quarter of the time journalist. I'm rooting for this guy. I want him to bury everybody. I want him to set the greatest, have the greatest career in history. And I want, I want it all. And I want that 1500, the second gold next year in Paris. And I want a third 
in 2020 in L- 2028 in LA. Prove the doubters wrong, Jakob. I'm your number one fan. Well, Robert, it is interesting. Jakob has a lot of big goals in the sport, and you were the one who kind of talked him into tra- chasing triple Olympic gold in the 1500 because he thought he was going to be the first to do it back to back if he wins in Paris. And you're like, no, actually, Seb Co did it in 1980 and 84. So now he said he wants to go after that. But there was an article I got sent to me from friend of Let's Run.com, Tomek Baginski, my roommate at the Valencia Marathon last year. And it was in a Norwegian newspaper saying he wants every world record from 1,500 meters to the marathon. And they even said the steeplechase could be considered in that thing. So I'm just like, I, I love this. I love that. I'm like, could he be the next Safan Hassan? I'm thinking to myself, look, I don't think he's ever going to break the marathon world record, but if there's someone, if there's a male equivalent to Safan Hassan, I do think it's Jakob because he's got the speed to be a global champion in the 1500. I think he has terrific endurance and he has the competitive mindset and the ability to not just race multiple distances, but want to do it, race a lot, chase these tra- crazy doubles or triples. I kind of do think Jakob might be the male Safan Hassan. That said, I don't think he's ever going to win the London Marathon, but wait for him to throw this back in my face seven years from now. You guys done talking back and forth to each other? Doesn't Letron.com need to hear from me? The one member of the team who was at the two biggest events in running this year. Sorry, Brussels Diamond League. The HYP meet and the Fifth Avenue Mile. I had to jump off at the beginning, guys. There was a delivery to the house. Artwork showed up. Thank God my wife works in private equity. Granted, in communications, but got to pay for this stuff somehow. Sounds expensive. You're complaining about not getting enough minutes on the podcast world, and then you openly admit to just skipping out to pick up some art delivery? I mean, that's your answer right there. I assume you guys have praised Jakob for doubling it pre, but the thing I want to talk about, could he go for a world record in the mile? Maybe baseless speculation is pointless because they'll announce the pacing very soon here, but we don't even have the fields announced. I'm really curious about the wild cards for some of these races. But then I thought... Jakob's trying to make a statement here. If you want to make a statement, maybe that's maybe the statement is the double. But what about just blasting a super fast mile? That would certainly make a statement, especially with Josh Kerr, world champion, notably absent from this field. I think the statement is the double Weldon, the mile 3K on back-to-back days, but... I hadn't really considered a world record attempt, but I'm looking at him like, I don't think it's that all that crazy. If you look at what Hisham El Garouge did, so he set his 2K world record of 444.79 in 1999. He set it two months after he set the mile world record of 343.13. That year, Hisham El Garouge's season's best in the 1500 was 327.65. Jakob's run faster this year, 327.14. It's not crazy to me. I think, are they in pr- levels, similar levels of fitness? I'd say probably pretty close. I mean, El Garouge didn't have the super shoes or pacing lights, but Jakob will have that stuff at the pre-classic if he wants it. So I, 
my suspicion is he won't go after it. I think in previous interviews he said earlier this year, you know, he didn't quite think he was re- ready to tackle the 1,500-meter world record. But the 1,500-meter world record is also harder than the mile. If we use Robert's favored conversion of 1.08, you multiply his 1,500 time by 1.08, that would get you 343.71 for the mile. And the world record is 343.13. So, yeah, if he's feeling up to it, if he's recovered from Brussels, I don't think it's out of the question, but my suspicion is he won't do it. But maybe that's something I should uh, at least address on the press at the press conference on Friday, assuming he's there. I really hope he goes for this record. Another way to think of the records, the mile being slower than 1,500, is 326.00 is a 1,500-meter record. The, the the mile world record by my you know it's like a three twenty six point five right so it's, no according to this conversion oh, it would be oh sorry yeah I think it would be sorry John Kellogg heard us talking about this in the back here and he says that two thousand mile two thousand record of Jacobs four forty three point one three is better than the mile world record so I really hope he goes for it I know someone that thinks it's going to be fast I saw a thing on Twitter or Instagram or somewhere. Facebook. Alan Webb's wife was like, is the old man's American mile record about to go? Webb was running on a treadmill without handles. It made me very nervous to see him running without handles. But it's like Webb's ready for Nagoose to break his own record. If Nagoose runs 346, doesn't that mean Jakob runs 343? Not necessarily, because Nagoose ran his PB 329.02, and Jakob ran like 327 mid, so that was more of a second and a half when they ran in Oslo. So I don't think it necessarily means that, but yeah, if Yard could run 346, I didn't even think about the American record in the mile, but yeah, I guess Webb's preparing for it to be broken. But why are we talking about times? We're about head-to-head competition. Who do you think is going to win the showdown between Kerr just another guy and Ingebrigtsen here at the pre-classic. That's what the fans want. That's what we're going to get. I can't wait. Ingebrigtsen wins by walkover. Back to Josh Kerr. Excuse me. World champion Josh Kerr. He showed up at the Fifth Avenue Mile on Sunday. Where yours truly just happened to be. And he dominated into this thing. Running very fast. 347.9. That's the fourth fastest time ever. And the more I think about it, that the record is 347.53 from the first one ever. Fred LeBeau was quite the promoter, John. We're not sure how accurate that course might have been, but there have been a couple other 347s since then. I mean, Sidney Marie has the record, and he was a 330 guy. So, you know, I... I you give it a little bit of credence, but I'm always suspicious of things like this when the record is set in the very first edition. Also, like Ruben Reyna's course record at the Footlockers when sort of everyone ran back really fast that year. Sorry, Cindy Marie's a 329 guy, so full props. You don't always get that many 329 guys running the Fifth Avenue Mile, but yeah, I'm kind of with you on that one. Well, a little fishy. Because it was no contest at the end. Usually, I feel like Fifth Ave, there's all these guys misjudging the finish. No. He crushed him. And then 
he announced to the disappointment, I think, of probably everyone, all running fans, that's it. There will be no Diamond League final for Mr. Kerr. I smell a Rojo's rant. Well, I just don't get it. People like ripped into Jakob for running worlds while sick and winning the silver medal. Jakob is so much better than Josh Kerr that he can run worlds sick. He can beat him the first 10 times they race. The 11th time they race, he leads the whole damn race while sick and almost beats him. Kerr gets a little bit tired and can't bother to go to the Diamond League final, which is in Eugene, which is like a stone's throw from Seattle where Brooks is based. Meanwhile, Jakob's flying all halfway across the world to race two races. It's just a, a, terrible for the sport. Guys, I tried my best. I said, Josh, Noah Lyles announced everyone his season was over, and then a few days later he changed his mind. Anyway, you can change your mind. And he said, I'm sure the appearance fee had something to do with that. Well, does that settle it? That Robert is more persuasive? Robert is better than Weldon in this area? He was able to convince the World 100-meter champion to run the Diamond League final. Weldon was not able to convince the World 1500-meter champion to run the Diamond League final. And the thing is, Kerr gets an appearance fee. Now, I don't know if he gets him in the past much, but... Come on, Weldon, don't hesitate. Go ahead and say it. Actually, make it for the Supporters Club. I've always said the Supporters Club is like... It's like my friends. And I'll say some stuff for the Supporters Club that I might not print. Kind of the type of stuff that if I hear it, I would say it to you in a bar if I was in person. And Supporters Clubs are my friends. You know, what do friends do? We do things for each other. You know, you buy each other drinks... In this case, supporters clubs buy my membership. I send them T-shirts, give them gossip. But, all right, this next set. Weldon has heard how much Josh Kerr's appearance fee is for Fifth Avenue and the Diamond League final. It's the same at both meets. Go ahead and share it with the supporters club members. Yeah, I heard he gets an appearance fee at both these races. I think around... We love you, but that's supporters club only audio. So that begs the question, when is Josh Kerr going to make a lot of money to show up at a race? Now, maybe he's the world champion and he'll be in demand next year, but this is the holiday part of the season. Cash in while you can, right? I don't doubt for a second Josh mentally is a little bit tired, but he showed up and crushed these guys. That was a very good run. He wasn't too tired to still crush these guys. I would love to see him just go to pre- now, John said he has nothing to lose. I think he loses some of his reputation if he gets crushed. I don't know. People are like, oh, look, Jakob crushed him. Maybe he doesn't want to end the season like that. And there is the motivation of each individual athlete. I mean, I remember as a college runner at the end of the season for the sort of like, I didn't make NCAs, but sort of like the IC4As, the little like postseason meets that didn't mean quite as much, going out and runs. And I started walking on one of them. I just was like, man, I'm really struggling with the motivation. So sometimes you can't fake it, but can't you fake it for a week for the fans and also for some decent money? It's like what I said to Noah. It's not hard to like taper down and go to the fashion week shows and go on good morning America. All you're going to be doing is jogging this week. Just jog for a couple weeks, a couple days, do some strides maybe on Tuesday 
and then pick up your five-figure appearance fee. And he's not like, come on. He just crushed a 349 miler. George Mills just ran 349 in a legit mile. And Kurt beat him by two full seconds. Yeah, look, it's lame that he's not running the Diamond League final, but if I'm going to play devil's advocate here, there are a few things I can understand what his thought process is. One, peaks for the World Championship. You you get the high of winning the gold medal at the World Championship. And then it's like, wait, I got to keep going for like another three weeks. I got to go out and run all these other races. Like, I can kind of just get it. He got his biggest goal of the season and the motivation might be waning. He might be feeling a little tired. Okay, he ran a great race at fifth avenue mile and i think it would have been nice you know maybe you just save that effort don't run fifth avenue and run the pre-classic instead i think most fans would have taken that trade-off but he kind of pointed towards jake whiteman last year jake whiteman won the world title in eugene ran a bunch of races off the worlds and then got hurt at the start of 2023 i don't really know how related running all those races was to getting hurt but He's basically like, look, I know my body. I'm getting kind of tired. I don't want to stress it anymore. Is it stressing it all that much by extending a season a week? I don't know. Maybe not, but I don't know. I'm not a world-class athlete. I haven't been in this situation. So I do think, though, that Josh Kerr's opinion on this seems to have changed. Because if you listen to the interviews he was doing and his own podcast after winning Worlds, he's like, well, I'm going to Zurich so I can qualify for the Diamond League final. And then when he ran Zurich, he got beat. He was like, oh, actually, I was here for the British record. Now he wasn't sure if he was going to run the Diamond League final anymore. But initially, his plan he was planning his... David Ribich was shifting his bachelor party to start in Eugene because Josh Coe was going to be at the Diamond League final. This was part of his plans. And I don't know if the fatigue just caught up to him at some point or whatever, but clearly his plans have changed at some point. The, the one other thing I would say... Track and field does not do itself any favors by having the Diamond League final three weeks after the World Championships. Because when you're going into the middle of September, you've got all these athletes who already peaked for Worlds. Some of them just don't have the interest in extending their season. There is prize money available. You know, most, most pros are going to do it for the very, but the very, very best of the best. I don't know. I think you would have a better shot of having more of them in the Diamond League final if it was 10 days after Worlds or maybe two weeks after Worlds. But, or maybe maybe, I would, maybe they wouldn't. Do you think if they moved the Diamond League final up at all, we'd get any difference in terms of who's showing up? I feel like the best solution is probably to have the Diamond League final before the World Championships like they did in 2019, but that's not always possible with the way the calendar's set up. I don't like the Diamond League final being a week after Worlds. It's just a repeat. I don't know what the good solution is, but speaking of the money, John, I think it had to be Josh. Yeah. He was acknowledging like, well, you know, you get 50 grand if you win the diamond league, that's nice. And I was like, uh, sorry, man. I think they changed it to 30 a couple years ago. And he's like, what? Like, I mean, our sport is so interesting. We, we pay appearance fees to get the stars to show up. Very little prize money. We treat the, triple jump officially the same as the hundred meters some structural problems here but i did stick out my hand to josh kerr and say dude you nailed it this season he's not jakob ingerbritsen his focus is on the championships 
I think we would all agree right now, Jakob's ceiling is much higher than Josh's. Josh's whole game plan is being the best on the day it matters most. A plus, he got it done. If you're not the best, you have to be the best on one day. So his training is different, that sort of stuff. Props to him. I mean, I think everyone tries to do that. Jakob's still trying to be his best of the world championship. He just has a system where either he's so much better than everyone else, he can win all these diamond leagues, or his racing a lot is built into his training. I don't think to say Jakob, oh, he screwed up, he didn't peak at the right time. I don't think he was any better in Silesia than he was at Worlds, as we just saw he ran 4.43 in Brussels. I think he was just sick at Worlds. Thank you, John. I've been reading a lot of stuff on the message boards about this nonsense. Like Someone said, Kerr doesn't care about winning the Diamond Leagues. He only cares about... Focus his focus is all in on the championships. Guess what? Jakob Zingerbrinson's focus is all in on the championships. That's what he's peaking for. He was getting progressively better as the season went on, and we just saw his best damn run of the season, you know, in this 2000. So he's in supreme shape. I, I you know, Kerr doesn't care about winning diamond finals. No, he does. He just can't win them. So that that's nonsense by the Kerr defender. Now, there, there's this, the, the, the schedule and all this stuff, I mean, we all agree. Like, it's almost impossible. Like, I get it. In other sports, people don't want to go to the All-Star game. They don't want to go to the Poor Bowl, but they do because they kind of have to. The league makes them do it. Our sport, the guys aren't paid that much. I just wish people would stop worrying about them and, and care about the sport a little bit more, particularly the well-paid ones. But, you know, you saw it earlier. Shakari doesn't even want people using her picture on a goddamn promotion of the meet unless she's paid. So, we've all said this. An ideal world, the Diamond League final would be before Worlds. The greatest championships, Worlds, and that ends the season period. In 2019, when we had an end-of-the-year Worlds, it was great. The Diamond League final was a, a you know, month before. It worked out well. I think we'll get that in 2025 again. We're having a late Worlds in Tokyo in the middle of September, right? So hopefully everything's done before then. Next year, obviously, in Paris, it starts August 1st, the Olympics. There's no way that the Diamond League final is going to be before that. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think it's kind of an unsolvable problem in terms of, you know, we want to have four grand slams. So people just, I was like, maybe put the world, the Diamond League final at the first meet of the year. But no one's, people are just going to blow it off because there's not enough money in it to make them do it. Um, but the one solution I can have is this. The shoe companies, if they would just not care about them goddamn selves and care about the sport and the drug testing and all that, that would have helped a long time ago, but that ship has sailed. But they could put in the contract, if you qualify for the Diamond League final and don't run it, $25,000 fine. But it's not the shoe company's thing to, you know, to care about that. Well, one other thing, though, about Dave, someone said about David Ribich. So this is the guy that does, this, the, they used to have a pod, he and Josh Curry used to have a podcast together. They'd stopped it. But after Worlds, they came back on for Victory Celebration podcast. And on the Instagram account that promotes the podcast, they had memes mocking Jakob Ingebrigtsen. They were kind of funny, some of them. I'm not going to lie, like a guy in a, Knight of Armor suit, sort of killing Jacob Ingebrigtsen in a suit and said, Edinburgh Athletics Club and blah, blah, blah. Well, then, do you think, you're the Instagram expert, you and the intern Alex has gone back to school, but can we go to Instagram and ask for people to submit memes? Like, and then we can get away from it and say, hey, it wasn't us. What they claimed was, it was user submitted. So they, you know, they feel like, like Jacob was being unprofessional by saying that he was sick, but Josh Kerr's Instagram account mocking Jakob was not unprofessional at all. That was just totally by board. So, like, let's get the memes in. Like, 
Yaakov beat Josh 10 straight times. Only lost to him when he was sick. Josh, scared to race when I'm tired. By the way, Josh, if you're listening, I do agree with Wells. Not shake your hand. You had an amazing season. It makes it much more interesting. I don't think a loss does that much for him, though. We know that Yaakov's better in rabbit races. Yaakov can beat him by 20 seconds in this race. It's still going to make me wonder what's going to happen in the Worlds next year. Unless Jakob starts running Diamond League after Diamond League without rabbits and winning them all, I'm going to have doubts about what's going to happen in the, world, in the Olympics. Yeah, I think, you know, Josh Kerr is a very confident athlete, but I think you ask him and who wins, who's favored in a rabbited Diamond League race, he'd probably, if he's being really realistic, I think he'd say Jakob. But you say the Olympics next year, no rabbits? Josh Kerr is going to back himself, and I understand why, because he beat Jakob in that kind of race in Budapest. So... I think the one thing, just speaking for the fans, we want to see the best athletes go against each other. And last year, Jake Whiteman beats Ingebrigtsen at Worlds. They don't race each other at Euros. They don't race each other at the Diamond League Final. Whiteman misses basically the entire 2023 season due to injury. They still haven't raced each other. This year, Josh Kerr, same thing, pulls the upset at Worlds. We don't get to see them race each other in Zurich. We don't get to see them race each other in Brussels. We don't get to see them race each other in the Diamond League Final. There is a potential for a great rivalry here, but we don't get to see the athletes square off. And I understand there are other reasons in it than then just, quote-unquote, dodging each other. But as a fan of the sport, you want to see these matchups and not getting them the last two years is kind of a bummer. To take a page from Woody Kincaid, to have a great rivalry, don't you have to occasionally beat the other person? I mean, I guess Josh did beat him in this last race, but if Jakob's winning all the races, I wouldn't go at a great rivalry. But look, this reminds me a little bit of, of the Marcel Jacobs, Fred Curley. We wanted that matchup all, see, all for a year or two, really for a year, and they were talking smack. But when they finally did race, it was like after the fact. Neither one of them was in great shape, and it wasn't a big deal. We were still kind of mildly interested in it. Like if Kerr, if 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 Whiteman races Ingebrigtsen, I don't care now. It's a year and a half later. Oh, I care. So. Why? But, yeah, no, it, like, here's the thing. I guess the Bowman Mile, it's still going to be one of the most interesting races at Pre because it's the Bowman Mile, but it got kicked up a notch if Co was in there. All right, let's talk a little bit about the, the Prefontaine schedule. We were going to do a lot of previews, but all the fields aren't out, so it's kind of hard. But Saturdays, it's a two day meet Saturday, Sunday. Saturday, you've got the Bowman Mile and the hundreds. But have you guys noticed what the Sunday, I, was, I mean, thank God because I've got a Ravens game I need to watch from one to four. So the meet's three to five on Sunday, I think. Or is it three to six? It's three to six. So first hour, I'm not going to miss much when it's 5,000 and stuff like that. But um, have you seen what they're ending the meet with? The women's 200. So are they going to get some fans in the stands blasting favorable win? We need to get the weather gods to conjure up a plus 1.5 tailwind for this race so Sharika Jackson can have a real shot at the record. Because from what I can see, I think the weather is it's going to be pretty hot in Eugene, which is good for sprinting. Sunday, high of 84 and sunny. Saturday, high of 88 and sunny. So the five, maybe that's why they're having a 3K here on, a, on Sunday instead of the 5K, because no one wants to run a 5K in you know, sunny in the middle of the afternoon. But for Sharika Jackson, they're setting the stage for something big, potentially. Fast track. I didn't think about that. If you get all the fans with like just a cardboard box and they kind of wave it up and down, would that create a little bit of wind? <laughs> I don't think so, but I, I don't know. It'd be kind of fun to see them try. 
There's not many on that. There's not many fans though on that turn is the problem. Now, what would you guys think, honestly, if Nike brought in a, a wind? You know, they had that wind thing when when, when Justin Gatlin ran the hundred meters in Tokyo, ran like nine three, with a wind tunnel behind him. What if I think I honestly think that they should get a a mechanical wind machine, put it behind the hundred meter start and blow it, skip Moldova. No, come on, man, that's like. Kipchoge laser car, you know, rotating pacing type bullshit. That there wouldn't be a legitimate race. Justin Gatlin ran 9.45 with his fan behind him. I mean, it wasn't a real time. No one regards it legitimately. So, no. uh, have you seen Florence Griffiths Joiner's world record, John? It is the world record. It was run with a ridiculous wind. I mean, the, here, so this would just be because two- her world record was ridiculous, we should no. employ clearly uh, ridiculous methods to break that time? Come on, no. It's going to be th- less than a 2.0 win. I'm going to have a less than 2.0 win behind my machine. I think that's a silly idea. Put that one on the pile of re- rejects. Yeah, I think if you were to say you only got to go to one day of this, this two-day meet, I think Saturday is clearly the day to go to. You get the hundreds, you get the 1500s, you get the steeples. Men's 400 hurdles with Warholm. Sunday's a little bit of a, I mean, still a Diamond League file. You're still going to get some great races. You got the men's 3000 with Ingebrigtsen. I guess the interesting thing is like, before Ingebrigtsen decided he was going to run this race, I thought Grant Fisher had a would have a legitimate shot to win the Diamond League file in the 3000 meters. Oh, come on. Robert, why am I crazy? He just ran 733, looking amazing in Rovereto last week. In the Diamond League, okay, he did get his ass kicked by Kajelcha. I'll admit that in Zurich. But he was right there with Borrega and Grijalva, battling it out for second. I don't know. The Ethiopians, some of the threads saying, oh, they're going to run, try to run really, really fast. I don't know. I mean, if they're doing all the work, could he maybe just hang up? You think that Aragawi or Kajelcha will just break away and run like, 725? I don't know. I think Grotfish is in like 730 shape right now. I wouldn't be shocked if he was hanging around. Ingebrigtsen's there now, so I don't think he really has much of a chance, but I think it would have been fun to see. You're bragging that he's in 733 shape? When like... It's not just 733. 733, where he won the race for like five seconds, looked phenomenal. Who else is in the race that we know of since the fields aren't out? Well, the people who are qualified for that race right now, the top four in the standings are all Ethiopian. You've got Kajelcha, Aragawi, Telehun Bekele, Solomon Borega, Luis Grijalva, Pagos Gebrouet, Mo Katir is also qualified. Joshua Cheptegei. I mean, it's a potentially fantastic field if they all run. Now, since Cheptegei is training for a marathon, is he gonna is Nike going to make him show up at this? Interesting. Look, I was debating, like, when is... When has he ever come close to winning a Diamond League? And then I looked it up. Is this true? Last year, Brussels, he ran 12.46 for second. What was first place in that race? It was Jacob Krop, like 12.45. They were battling it out for the win on the final lap. And then he's had a couple other runs. There have been ones like Monaco last year or Zurich this year where he's like third, but he measures his effort very well. I just, it doesn't make any sense to me that this guy would win a Diamond League when he was training in a pool for two months. Like, it just doesn't make sense to me that he'd be in the form of life. Now, what he has going for him is maybe chapter guys are not there, or maybe chapter guys in the middle of marathon training, or maybe some of these other guys are way up past their peak and have packed it in, or 
you know, something like that. Cause they haven't, but actually since worlds, there's been no distance. No, there was, there was the one race, right? Yeah, but he's been, he's trending upwards. The three K maybe the endurance doesn't matter as much as it does in the five K. I don't think it was crazy to suggest with how well he's looked in these two races. All right, let's talk wild cards. So one of you knows the backstory on this. Apparently at the pre-classic, there can be an extra American added to every race. And then somehow they can add in four international race, four yeah. people total. To, so what's the so story here, John? Here's the scoop, Robert. Weldon did some digging and then I got some clarification from Jeff Oliver, who's the press chief at the pre-classic. And he said, yes, the Diamond League final meeting organizer may invite a national wildcard from the country in which the final is taking place, even if there are other athletes of that nationality in the field. So that basically means the U.S. gets a bonus entry in every single event if they want it. And so that, so like in an eight-lane event, they, they only put seven from people that actually qualify? Or is it, do they use the ninth lane? I'm guessing you use the ninth lane. Um, I didn't get the finer details on that. And then the other thing, so then I, I asked them also, like, who is making the decision on who gets in or not? And they just said, it was a meeting organizer. Um, they were kind of, they want, he didn't really answer me in terms of like what criteria is used to determine the entry, but it's basically up to the discretion of the meet organizer. It's a Nike meet. So I'm, I'm guessing Nike athletes might get preference here. Well, speaking of that, I spoke to Nikki Hiltz. After Fifth Ave, I said, do you want to do pre? Nikki said yes. And then I asked, do you know the process for that? Nikki said, quote, it's a Nike meet. And so just all the Diamond Leagues are kind of political like that. But I don't know. We'll see. I think I have a good shot. Well, I don't know if you saw on Twitter, but they posted their season's over. So I don't know if that means that Nikki changed their mind or that Nikki wasn't allowed into the meet. Well, you're saying Nikki posted there is Nikki. Oh yes. There refers to Nikki for those, I guess people in this podcast probably know, but Nikki prefers the they, them pronouns. So John saying Nikki posted on, I did not see that. I wonder if that means Nikki didn't get the buy. I'm curious about that because if you look at the pre-classic on the website, the main contact on the diamond on the world athletic site is Michael Riley meet director, but then co-director is John Capriotti, who we all know is the longtime director of sports marketing in Nike now no longer employed by Nike, but I think he still does some contracting contracting with them. But anyway, he's the co-meet director. So, Looks like those two would be the ones making the decision on who gets this American wild card. I would like to know the legal structure of the meet, right? Does Nike own this thing? Are they just the primary sponsor? That would be fascinating. And John Capriati brings up a different angle. Danny Mackey, the coach of Josh Kerr, filed a police report against John Capriati. So I think that Nike angle could possibly you know, play into something here. That's a great point. I didn't think about that. Maybe I take back all the criticism of Josh. Danny Mackey has a probably, a, and Capriotti have a personal hatred. Why Why would Danny Mackey want to help jo Capriotti's meet out? 
but it'd be good for the sport if, if they did. But, you know, there was an interesting thread on Twitter where, you know, before Steve Magnus went to USADA and BBC, like Danny Mackey had already turned in the NOP. He was an in, he was like a working at Nike and saw some things that he didn't like to see and thought that there might be doping on the NOP going on. So interesting thread on Twitter where Magnus is like, well, I know you can coach a world champion that's clean because I, I believe Danny does it the right way. Although that I, I do too, but I was thinking cynical, like, you know, remember when Paula Radcliffe had the EPO cheats out sign? I think she was totally clean then. Maybe, maybe there's definitely an argument can be made that a lot of people do it clean for a long time, then they get tired of being beaten by cheats and then then go to the dark side. I don't whoa, I whoa, definitely whoa, don't think whoa, that, whoa. that happened if, here. As the man who paced Paula Radcliffe to a record, you just implied she wasn't clean. Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying a lot of people have that theory that she didn't dope at the beginning and then she doped at the end. Or you could say the same thing with Danny. I don't think that's the truth. But none of this really proves anything. Like whatever. But look, in terms of wild cards, Nikki Hiltz is the U.S. champion indoors and out. But I would much rather see it go to Addie Wiley. We haven't even mentioned it, but in uh, Brussels, you know, we spent a whole show on Friday talking about it. Three, beat Jenny Simpson's longtime collegiate record, three fifty nine. She just ran one fifty seven. Nike's maybe negotiating, trying to get her on a team. I can certainly see why they'd want to give her the spot. Other spots I want to see wild card. Men's mile, obvious to me who I want to get the American wild card on this one. Cole Hawker? Hobbs Kessler? Oh, well, if if Cole Hawker doesn't have it, he deserves it. But isn't he right? Isn't he next in line to go? Definitely Hobbs Kessler. Like, this is a young guy. This is the this could be the future of, of US miling. He's kept it going um, after Worlds. He just flew over to Europe. He just won. He, he ran 334. Is that right, John? 335? And then he, I saw he also ran 1-800 and 146 low. So he's in good form. Like, give this guy a bone. I mean, n- nobody else moves the needle. If Hawker doesn't need it, give it to Kessler. Anybody else, it's going to be a joke. I, I, if they start giving it to low-level Nike athletes, I'm, I'm going to absolutely lose it. Like if David Ribich somehow ends up in, 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 in the final, I'm going to just blast them. Well, I, I don't think that's going to happen. One of the criteria is that the their standard is adequate to compete at that level, and David Ribich would be overmatched by, based on what he's done this season. The the other interesting thing, though, is Jakob Ingebrigtsen doesn't have any points in the 3,000-5,000, yet he's been added to the final there. And I was trying to... I'm like, how is there a provision for this? I, this national wildcard thing has always been around. You would see these random Swiss athletes popping up in Zurich. But I'm like, how is Jakob getting into the 3K? And John, did Joe Biden finally do something that I'm proud of? He gave Jakob American citizenship. Oh, my God. No. I and love you, Joe. It's a kind of it's kind of funny though because I was looking, I'm googling, I'm like Diamond League rules and regulations, and I find one from like March of 2023. It's the 2023 Diamond League rules and regulations, and there is no provision for global wildcards or anything like that. But then I'm googling around again, and then Sam Ivanecki sent me a, a link on Twitter, and it's like a screenshot, and it's like this global wildcards thing. I'm like, I don't see this anywhere. Then I look on the World Athletics website. They've updated the regulations in August of 2023 to include a global wildcards provision, which, you know, there's a bunch of criteria, which Jakob Ingebrigtsen does meet. 
they said you can their maximum number is for four athletes so in principle two men and two women across the entire meet and it's for events where they haven't already granted a national wild card so i don't think that mean i think that means they're not going to get a national wild card in the 3000 and you know it has to be someone ranked in the top five of their discipline or the currently the current world record holder or Olympic world diamond league champion. Jakob's the world champion, so he would get in. And it says they're not eligible for prize money in that event, but they can be crowned the diamond league champion. So a national wild card cannot be crowned diamond league champion. The global wild card can. But essentially, they added in this regulation. You don't have to qualify. You can get added into the diamond league final. I was saying this last week. I was like, look, if Josh Kerr doesn't have enough points to the 1500, add him in. If a thing Mo wants to run the Diamond League final, add him in. It makes the meet more interesting. It's a better no. meet with Jakob Ingebrigtsen in the 3K. You're on the opposite side of this, Robert? So Sydney can just blow off the Diamond League. Then every year they, they beg her to show up, give her a huge appearance fee, and she gets to run it. I don't like that. But I guess she wouldn't win the prize money, but her appearance fee is going to dwarf the prize money anyways. Well, so, I, I'm not saying like, offer her a well, huge appearance fee. I'm saying if you want to run it, you can come run it, but you don't, they don't need to pay her a ton when, you know, if that's what it's going to take to get her to run. We're all in agreement that the wild card for Worlds does nothing. Like, we don't like it. Why Why should we reward Josh Kerr and not make him run race next year? Like, like g- g- giving the wild card to the world champion, I don't like. And in this case... I'm fine with Jakob racing. There should be some rule. If you're already in the meet, you can run as many events as you want if there's space for you. But in general, I I, I want to encourage people to run more races. But yeah, I, I kind of see what you're saying. It's like not a bit, whatever. I it do. Isn't... I want to encourage people too. But this is, you know, this is the Diamond League final. We need as many names as we can get. It's not like, I don't know. Do you, like, is the meet better or worse if a thing Mo was running the 800, Robert? It's better, but so who can get the prize money again? So Jakob does not get the prize money, but can the national runner get the prize money? Because the the no prize money money is interesting. I wonder if they did that from a legal standpoint. Not that anyone would have the guts to sue a meet owned by Nike because the agent probably doesn't want to do that. But imagine if you've sort of been running all these races, trying to get in the Diamond League final because you don't have a big contract and you want the 30 grand, and then they just put somebody in there from another event and they take your 30,000. So it's, it's flipped. So the national wild cards can win the prize money, but can't earn the title of diamond league champion. The global wild cards can't win the prize money, but can win the title of diamond league champion, but they don't get the, if this was a year in which diamond league buys were awarded, which it's not because there's the Olympics next year, the global wild card would not get the diamond league buy. Wait, I'm really confused. Why is there a difference? Nobody knows. Look, they just added they added this thing in in August to make sure they can get some world champions showing up if they wanted to, and they're using it to get Jakob in the race. So I don't, like I said, I don't really mind. I think it's kind of it's kind of funny they added this provision one month before the meet, but it makes it for a better meet. And if they were using it to maybe get a thing Mo, which they're obviously not going to, I would be in favor of that as well. All right, any agents out there, you need to tell us what the hell is going on. I would love to know how also Nike flexes and makes athletes run this meet. They make them run for free sometimes. I don't know. How does that work? Obviously, like a thing, Mo is in here, so the flex only works certain ways. I would love to know this pressure. Agents, email us. Call us, 1-844-LET'S-RUN. And 
Yeah, you need to be a Supporters Club member. We've talked about it. We discussed Addie Wiley's collegiate record at length on the Friday Supporters Club podcast. We just revealed you the scuttlebutt about how much we thought Josh Kerr gets paid to show up at these things now. Join today, let'srun.com slash subscribe. We'll have a post-race show, some point at pre. We're not even sure which day. It's, it's, if you want to call yourself an insider in track and field, there's one way. Supporters Club. And, John, people, I was sort of taken aback at Fifth Ave. People were asking like for selfies with me. I'm not sure why. It was just like, Maybe somebody saw one guy do it, and then like people just kept coming up. I and well, people. I did three different sets of selfies, but of photos from podcast lovers. Weldon's not explaining this. They said, "I love the podcast. Can I get a selfie with you?" Yeah. Also at the HYP meet. Anyway, but then they're they're talking about it. they want to meet up in Eugene, John. They want beers. They want free beers at everything now because we always say we have you know if you meet us we get you a free beer, but. There's a free beer. If someone's a true supporters club member and they're flying to like Worlds, they get a free beer there. And they want one now in Fifth Ave. They want one. One of these guys, Habs, is going to the Diamond League final. And speaking of such, there's a Diamond League final prediction contest run by Habs, sponsored by Let's Run. Check it out. We'll put a link up on, on the homepage. You can win, win a supporters club membership. So, well, well, you're in charge of this thing. I don't think, I mean, I don't think I've bought Habs, uh, his supporters club beer for 2023. I saw him, I think it was at Milrose. Maybe it was, yeah, it was either Milrose this year or last year. I was on the train with him and his girlfriend. But if, yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like you're if you're in Eugene and Budapest and you're flying there on your own dime, I, I think it's kind of fair to buy him a beer in both places. By the way, there's a private let's run. I mean, Robert Johnson policy. Free beers for all women 35 years of age and under that are drinking with Jonathan Galt. All you have to do is text me a picture of you drinking with John. I'll Venmo you the money instantly. All right, no comment on that. John, that's one of these comments like 30 years from now that we play that and be like, Jesus, you really said that on the air? But hey, Robert wants to look a little outdated. I guess it's just the signature of his age. Uh, at least we can acknowledge it in the moment. It's inappropriate. Robert is probably just smiling and you know, giggling. I can see him right now. But John, 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 when I'm asked to officiate your wedding because I made it happen, I'll just I'll, I'll try not to say I told you so. I'm trying to imagine the scenarios that would lead to me allowing Rojo to officiate my wedding. But anyway, Saturday night though, I I've heard rumors the Wild Duck when I was at USA's in July. They said the Wild Duck is supposed to be up and running again maybe by the Diamond League final. So Saturday, the night, the meet men's ends nice and early. So I'll probably be looking for somewhere to wet my whistle. And if I see supporters club members there, I'll be happy to buy them their first beer. Not sure about Sunday night. The Patriots are on Sunday night football. I really need to put my energy into that. And, you know, watching it at some crowded bar. And I don't know if that I think I'm probably just going to go to the Airbnb and watch that one. But Saturday night should be hitting the town. So that'll be fun. We'll have more coverage from Eugene. We'll maybe do a Friday 15 quick preview after the press conference. And then I we're thinking maybe Saturday after the meet, we'll do a live reaction show. Unclear about Sunday, but we'll, we'll have some good stuff from you from Eugene. I head out there on Thursday. We've been talking about, well, I was going to call him the goat. That's probably a little bit premature. Jakob Benson. 
We've been talking about the great Jakob Ingebrigtsen for close to an hour now, much of the first hour. But another man that many in Britain love, I guess maybe perhaps the love is worldwide, Mo Farah, 10-time global, 10-time global gold medalist. Is that right, John? Or just 10-time medalist? Has retired gold medalist. He is retired. He finished fourth of the Great North Run in some pedestrian time. And the question I wonder is, what is his the legacy of the ten-time world champion? Where does he rank among the all-time distance greats? Now, Brendan Foster, who admittedly I think works for the Great North Run, or did he found the Great North Run, John? Or yeah, admittedly he's a little bit biased because he was promoting most running there. He called Mo Farah, I, there was some debate on the ex- exact quote and how it was phrased, but the way I read it with John, he was saying Mo Farah is the greatest British athlete, period, all sports. Some people were claiming, no, he just meant track and field. The way I read it was all sports. How, what did you think of his comments? Oh, I thought he was saying all sports. I mean, he was comparing him to sort of, he's like, well, he wasn't in a boat with three other guys, which would be comparing him to Steve Redgrave, who won four straight Olympic golds in rowing. Or that, you know, he's basically he's like he's out there on his own, and I don't know, ten, four Olympic gold medals, individual gold medals, and six world titles. He's got the British record in basically every distance event from fifteen hundred through the marathon. You can make the argument. I mean, I don't know. There's been a lot of, you know, there's Andy Murray. There's look, Britain's produced a ton of different sports athletes, but like. Mo Farah was undoubtedly the greatest in his event for the first half of the 2010s and consistently doing the double-double. We Look how hard it... No one's done it since he, he did it in 2016 at the Olympics. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'd have to look in... I'm not ready to crown him like the greatest British athlete of all time, but I, I can't immediately dismiss it out of hand, I think. The, the interesting thing is, like you asked, what is his legacy, Robert? I mean, to me, his legacy was unbeatable in track finals for about a five-year stretch. For, he won 10 straight from the 5,000 in Daegu in 2011 to the 10,000 in London in 2017. You know, it was game over. He just had a, he was strong enough that no one could drop him, but he, was, he had 328 speed. So he just hung around. He found out, very, he was like, okay, I'm going to go to the lead with three laps to go and just not let anyone pass him. And when you're clearly better than everyone else, that's a very effective strategy. So he was just able to own the global championships for a stretch there. But I don't, I, I just don't think, I know he's won more track goals than Hailey and Kenneth Bekele, but those guys were breaking world records and pushing the limits of distance running while they were in their primes. And Mo Farah wasn't doing that. He was dominating everyone, but he wasn't, doing things we'd never seen before. Exactly. I think the real question is, where does he rank among the all-time distance greats? And th- there was some talk, is he the greatest of all time? We were starting to have those discussions when we first started this podcast. You know, what would he do if he won something? Could he do it? Answer to me is no. I was like, he'd have to win more, like, Mar- Olympic marathon gold, or I don't know. But, like, clearly behind Mo Farah, excuse me, Kenanese Bekele and Hilary Gebrselesi. I mean, I came of age with Gebrselesi. He used to be my pen when I got into college, Hilary G or something, or my password when I had an AOL account. 
back when you could have a password of just highly G. You didn't need some damn exclamation point, question mark, whatever, capital stuff. And then Bikili came around. Like, they had the world records and the gold medals. They didn't have the double golds, but how often did they go for the double golds? Like, uh, Bikili they had, had the double gold in 2008 and 2009. I know, but they didn't. Like, how many times did they go for the double gold and come up short with it? I, I think a lot back then they had rounds of the 10K. They were more interested in running world records and getting money that way. I, I, just because they didn't get the double gold doesn't mean that I don't think that they would have. Like, Well, Pekele in 2003 and 2004 went for double gold and got denied both times. He won the 10K. He got beat by Kipchoge. He got beat by El Garouge. But if Farrow was racing in El Garouge, do we think that he would have beaten him? No, I think, I mean, I think Bekele in his prime would have dropped Mo Farah. Uh, I think he was just stronger, but. It's, it gets back to that Ingebrigtsen thing we are talking about earlier. Like, I, I've started to realize, that, like, Ingebrigtsen is kind of Mo Farah. Like, this talk of 10,000 stuff and him being the son, it's not crazy talk at all. Good luck dropping him, and then he's going to beat you at the end of the race. And, but. Uh, without without even questioning it, to me, I mean, Bikili's got tons of golds, better, much better marathoner, almost a marathon world record, and then all the cross country things. He's the greatest to me. Gabriel Celeste's got to be second. Now, in terms of five and ten, I mean, well, in terms of distance runners, without even hesitation, John Kellogg and I are putting Kipchoge ahead of Mo Farah. Yes, no doubt. On the mar- just on the marathon alone. Yeah. He also did have a world championship goal, but to me, it's just been a more who revolutionized their, you know, di- he revolutionized distance running in a much more profound way than Mofera ever did. Mofera was unbeatable in, in these championship races. I don't know. I liked Mo. I love talking to him, but he just, he never really moved the needle for me. And I guess it, it's, it's the same way, like, honestly, in a sick way that, like, Eddie Wiley's not getting the publicity she deserves now because it's kind of like you have your doubts. Even if there aren't 80% doubts, if it's 10% doubts, 20% doubts, it's just a little bit like some could say his legacy is be a mediocre distance runner and then sign up with some shady people and just dominate the world. Like, I'm, I'm kind of surprised even the British pressure writing is like, what is Farah's legacy? He joined Salazar. He was lying about um, whether he knew Jama Aden, how well he knew Jama Aden. He was lying about, he, tried, he initially lied about the Al-Karnatine and then came back and admitted it. But in defense of Mo, I mean, it's, look, most of these phenoms, most of these people who have been all-time greats were phenoms, right? Faith Kip Yegon, junior phenom. Haile Gabriselesi, junior phenom. Mo uh, Kenesa Bikile, junior phenom. Jacob Ingebrigtsen, junior phenom. Farah, whatever. But now, you he was mediocre and then all of a sudden a world beater. Now, you could say he was just motivated. He got better, he got smarter, he got better coaching. And you could honestly, in his defense, say maybe, like, look, this is a guy that allegedly was a child slave human trafficking, didn't have the most stable environment. Maybe he's not training at the same level as these other guys. And, you know, he, once he got stability in his life and had a little bit of money and could really train, because what I will defend Mo on is 
how many distance runners are willing to move across the world to try to be the best, to up, to, to give up what they have, a comfortable life in England. He moves to the UK. He moves to the US. Now, he's certainly not the only one. I mean, Weldon moved from, gave up his consulting job, and I say Weldon was the best in the world, lived in, a, in his car half the nights in Flagstaff. Like, Stefan Hassan moved to Eugene. Yomov Kajelcha moved to Eugene. But not everyone's willing to do that. So he was obviously desired greatness, and he got it. And I always thought he was a good interview. He, he didn't, like, fear Let's Run. Like, everyone else in NLP, like, didn't want to talk to us. Oh, most. But, I mean, this is one thing I'll give him credit for. He had to face a lot of questions in his career because of his associations with Arden and Salazar. He faced them. He would go in the press conference. He'd let the press come at him, and he'd come out of it. And there was sometimes there was a combative res- relationship there with some members of the media. But I think in general, he understood why there were questions, and he understood that we had a job to do. So I appreciate him for that. Yeah, I think he's probably in the top ten somewhere in terms of all-time distance runners need to figure out exactly where he ranks in there, but he was the dominant track distance runner of the 2010s. um, Just cleaning up on those titles. I mean, he's going to have, are we ever going to see someone win 10 track gold medals again in the distance events? Maybe Inga Kubrickson could get there, especially if he moves up to the five and 10, but that level of consistency is remarkable. But as you said, Robert, there are always going to be questions about associations with Salazar, who was banned not for doping as athletes, but for multiple anti-doping rules violations. And with John Arden, who, again, was linked to that hotel but, raid. But, but John, then how come whenever I bring up that Centrowitz was, was Salazar, you don't freak out about that? Or Safana Hassan? We never we Matthew never Centrowitz oh, won a world championship medal being coached by Andy Powell in 2011. Matthew Centrowitz has always been a freak talent. Mo, Mo Farah was... Yeah getting his ass kicked in global finals, didn't even make the Olympic final in 2008. Then at the age of 28, he shows up with Alberto Salazar and suddenly is the best distance runner in the world. That sort of late career improvement is unprecedented to get to that level. And the other thing is some people have been like, oh, well, he wasn't really training seriously before he got to Salazar. Yes, he was. The first few years of his pro career, no. But there's a story, he's said it many times in some of these interviews, he was in, I think it was Teddington, and he sees some of the Kenyans and how hard they're working, and then he kind of realizes, oh, I got to start working this hard. And he was with Alan Story, who was with a good coach. He, he, Alan Story was a top coach. He wasn't some moron that wasn't training him properly. And he ran 12.57 under Alan Story. He got sixth in the world in 2007 under Alan Story. This was, you know, he was a good runner. He just wasn't the best. And then he goes and he's totally unbeatable. So some people look at that transformation and the switch to Salazar and they have questions. Obviously, Farah's never failed a doping test. He's never been, you know, suspended or anything like that before. But there are there is going to be a certain amount of people who are just going to look at that and they're going to look, oh, he's training. He was with Jama Arden in some of these altitude camps and they're going to have their questions. And I don't think those questions are unwarranted. But Mo Farah's... Take, he's taking the slings and arrows. But I know, but it doesn't make that much sense to me, John, logically speaking. I mean, child prodigies can also dope. Like, if Fair is there and there's hardcore doping, then why wouldn't we think Hassan and Centro and these other people on it? And and that was the thing that never, still never makes sense to me. Is like, okay, you know, Goucher was on it, but she was clean and, and on the team, and she was totally clean. 
and Amy Yoder Begley totally clean. And they can owe their current jobs for the success they had on Salazar, who's an evil, evil human being. But of course, they didn't do anything wrong, at least not knowingly. Same thing with Ritzenheim. It's just a mess of a story. The whole sport, our whole sport's disgusting at some well, level because we yeah. don't know what to believe. So I still enjoy it. I have fun. But I, I just try to sometimes ask these uncomfortable questions because it's like, okay, if we're going to ask it of Mo, why don't we ask it of Centrowitz? No, I think there is a difference there in, 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 the, in the backstory. But, you know, I mean, Lance Armstrong, he's a year or two older than me. Like he was a prodigy in, in high school, Texas. Like he was an amazing triathlete. He kicked, he could kick ass and cross. He was a way better cross country runner than we were. Admittedly, he was older than us, but, um, and he dope. So, no, the, Robert, I think the thing is, we can never truly know. It's like Steve Magnus saying, I'm confident that Josh Kerr's, you know, a clean world champion that this proves you can do it clean. You might believe that. I can, The only person who knows whether Josh Kerr is doping or any of these athletes doping is, is themselves. So we can never truly know in track and field, but we can have our sort of suspicions. And I think the difference between someone like Mo Farah and Matthew Centrowitz is one, Centro was really good, really young, which Farah was not at the same level. And also Mo Farah had the Jama Arden connection which Centrowitz didn't have. There are just some things, you know, that you, you pile on a couple of questions on top of questions. I think there are fewer questions around Centrowitz than Mo Farah, but that doesn't mean that Mo Farah is dirty and it doesn't mean that Centro is clean. And I'm, I'm going to say this, just I'm going to get this out there. When you go train in Africa, it makes me more suspicious, particularly given all the busts we've had recently. It's a lot easier to get drugs in Africa, I would say. There's less out of competition testing particularly five or 10 years ago than there is in the U S now. I mean, Des Linden went to Africa. So I'm not saying everybody that goes to Africa trains, um, you know, is dirty. I would love to see an interview with Alan's story. I think in the past you've tried to reach out to him and he didn't really want to talk. Like maybe we say we'll embargo this until you're dead. But I would love to think like he's the smart guy. Like that's what I said to, to, back in the day when I was talking to Magnus, you know, when he went to BBC and USADA, he was talking to me before he'd done that, talking about his concerns. I said, the thing that bothers me is like, Steve, don't you know? If you're the assistant coach, like, can't you tell like what's normal and what's not? Like, you think you're there every day. Like, but I guess it's microdosing and who knows? But anyways, okay. all right, enough Mo Farah talk. Let's talk about the biggest meet of the year. The only one that Weldon Johnson attended, decided to attend as a fan. He took his three-year-old daughter to her first running race, the most prestigious meet of all, the Harvard-Yale-Princeton cross-country meet, which held down the road somewhere in Connecticut. In case you weren't there, congratulations to the Princeton women who won with 29 points and the Yale men who won with 18 points. That wasn't the real story there. As this race was going on, the men's race was going on. Weldon sends us a video of the race, and he's like, what is going on here? The Princeton men did not run any of their cross-country runners. They ran five 800-meter runners with POBs between 800 and between 151 and 153, including former Let's Run.com podcast guest Joe Fast. Remember when we had him on during COVID? He emailed us about something. We love the name. He was going to Princeton. There wasn't a lot going on. We had him on the show. They ran this race. It was a 6K race. 
they ran together. I don't know if run is the right word. They jogged together. They ran 23-32.3 for the first three of them and 23.32.4. It was such a blanket finish that in the official results, there's a three-way tie for 14th, a two-way tie for 17th. What they a spread, than- Robert. I mean, that's incredible. Incredible spread. Point one of a second right there. Have you ever seen a, a team? What pack running, the most amazing display of pack running in the history of the sport. Point one second separating the top five. They were more than four minutes behind the next to last finisher in the race. And Princeton, they all were the five last people in the race. This is a 6K, and they f- scored 75 points. Harvard, Yale 18, Harvard 43. A gentleman's 618 per mile average pace for six kilometers. So this is created a discussion amongst Weldon and me and some Ivy League alums about whether this was appropriate. There's a huge message board discussion on this entitled... There's a couple of them, I think. Princeton's men's XC should be sanctioned by NCA for obvious tanking. Weldon was there. I've talked to both the Harvard and Princeton coaches. Not talked to the victorious Yale Bulldogs... I've my my views in this are solidified. I've held off posting on the message board because we are just going. I'm probably post today, but I'm just going to save it for the podcast. I am friends with the Princeton Harvard coaches. It's clear in my mind my thoughts. I probably know a little bit more information than you guys do, but should I start or do you want to give me your thoughts? Maybe John's the less least biased here. Sure, Weldon's thrilled that Princeton decided to tank so Yale could win this meet for the first time ever. I don't know. This was Yale's first win ever in this meet. Uh, I mean, it's probably not not true. But I I don't have a super strong opinion. But it's it's a taking to an extreme what we already have seen from cross country. Most of the good teams don't take the first part of the meet season seriously. They can't even earn points in this meet. The qualifying window for NCAA's hasn't started. But I'm not sure if that's true. Someone told me that rule may have changed. Is that oh maybe that changed? Okay. What? But six is it six k? Oh, it also has point. to be 75% of the championship distance, right? And the 6K is under that. So I don't think you can get points okay. for a 6K race. Anyway, look, the reason they had this meet is to to tick a box. You need to have a meet within, you know, two or three weeks or something of reporting to campus so that they can, kids can get on campus and start training. I I don't like this. It's a bad, it's not great for the sport to have people just jogging and to satisfy a criteria. I don't think that having your top guys go out there and run it semi-seriously is really going to hurt them all that much. But I don't know. I, 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 is there a way to fix this? Do you guys have a solution to this problem? Because this isn't the this is taking to extreme what we already see across the sport, where there's only two or three meets per season that matter, and many of the top athletes uh, only race in those races. I guess we need to tell a little bit of a backstory here, John. So the what. This is taken to the logical extreme of what we've seen throughout college track and field and cross country in recent years. In a lot of meets, the, the teams just don't care at all. The win-loss means nothing. And they'll blow everything off except for pre-nats and cross country conference and nationals. Um, this is he, They also took to the logical extreme of what's been happening in this Harvard-Yale-Princeton. I mean, it's embarrassing how these schools behave amongst themselves. Like, there was apparently a contract signed between they were having disagreements about when the meet would be held, where it would be held. And they signed a a contract a number of years ago that if you did not show up for this meet, 
you were fined $20,000. So Princeton clearly showed up not to get the fine and did this. But to me, what they did here is a lot different than load management. It's a lot different than not running your guys. It's a lot different than what we see in the NFL preseason. The Ravens don't play their starters. But the Ravens were proud of having a 20-plus game win streak in their damn preseason that ended this year. The people that do play, even in the NBA when they're trying, they try as hard as they can. The scrubs that are playing are trying as hard as they can. These guys were not trying. This was not an honest effort. If the Princeton girls team had been in this race, they would have smoked these guys. John and I have done the conversion. The girls only ran 4K, so you can't quite compare the times, but they would have easily been able to cable this performance. They weren't trying. To me, it's now interesting fact here. There's no on the words honest effort do not appear in the NCAA rule book for indoor track or outdoor track. But to me, this is clearly a violation of two NCAA rules regarding cross country, Article 20 and Article 33. To me, this is clearly unsporting behavior, Article 20, and antithetical to the spirit of competition, Article 30. As a result, I think that Princeton should, without a doubt, be disqualified from this competition. And this should not count for number for minimum number of meets or if, if they need to start. Sometimes we at Cornell back in the day, we needed to meet within like two weeks of starting practice. Otherwise, they wouldn't let the kids come back early. So, you know, whatever. Princeton signed a contract with Harvard and Yale to compete at the Harvard-Yale-Princeton meet for three years. They did not compete in this meet. This is a disqualification, clearly, for me. Uh, Rojo, the Princeton alum, coming out guns blazing against his alma mater. Thank you. But, Thank you, Rojo. And Rojo's friends with, with Jason Vigilante, the Princeton coach. No, I mean, I consider him, a, I would say a friend, but not, I don't really know. I consider him like a friendly acquaintance or something. Like I went up, I saw the people on the starting line. I like, I didn't think I saw full teams for Princeton and Harvard. I thought there was only five guys for both teams. I haven't looked. And the gun went off and I just was like, like Princeton was just not trying. And I'm like, Vig what the hell, man? And he essentially said the stuff about the contract and stuff and doesn't matter to him. He doesn't care about this meet. But with reflection, it's embarrassing. I'm sorry. There is a spirit of competition. If you're in a meet, you should try. And I feel sorry for those five guys who had to go out there and embarrass themselves. I'm sure they just thought, oh, we're doing what coach wants. But yeah, there needs to be something done about it. So either a stern warning or the Ivy League should look into this. Someone should file a complaint the more I think about it. I, I just don't like it. Okay, now let me defend them a little bit because a few things here. Princeton's, what are their goals? Their goals are to win the Ivy League championship and do well at NCAs. In the last couple of years, they've won the I Ivy League championship very narrowly, hard-fought battles with Harvard, and then they've absolutely bombed and imploded at NCAs. And part of the reason was, you know, last year, Princeton narrowly won this race over Harvard. So I totally understand if Coach Vigilante decides this meet doesn't mean anything. We're not running our top guys. I've got to get better at NCAs. We're, this meet, you know, this, this isn't the 1970s where the, it was all about dual meets and dry meets. I totally understand that. So you don't want to run your top seven guys. That's fine. I would have run like eight through 12. Now, he's... In, in texting with, with Coach Fidge, I actually admired this. He's like, there's a couple guys. There were, he wanted to run like an 8-19-3K guy. That guy got COVID. There's a couple other guys, like a 340, a guy who ran 343 as a freshman. He, was, he doesn't want to run him because he's not really good at cross country. He got like 80th in, in cross country last year, so he's not ready to like contribute 
in a meaningful way for cross country. But he's like, I want him to have a redshirt year. So when he graduates from Princeton, he'll have a whole season of extra eligibility in case he's really good in four years. I totally admire that because I used to think about that sometimes. Like the kid would kind of be hurt. He's no good as a freshman. I'm like, should I throw him out there? Maybe who knows how good he's going to be in three or four years. Maybe this will pay for his grad school. Totally respect that. These 800 guys, he's like, look, they barely ran all summer. They only run 10 miles a week. A lot of them hurt. I still think they can run hard for 6K. Either that or don't just show up and, and take the fine. This was not a competition. This is worthy of a DQ. It's not that big of a deal. Now, it's been pointed out to me, 2019, I mean, the reason why there was a contract was because these schools had already been doing this. 2019, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, indoor meet. Harvard shows up. Apparently, the whole team took the trip down to Princeton or wherever the damn meet was. And they scored 15 points in a track meet. This is the year they were third in the Ivy League with like 100 points. So they completely blew off a track meet. Didn't So like, is this, I can see why you think this. Like, how is this any different than you taking the whole team and them not starting the competition? They're just sitting on the sideline cheering on the teammates, which to me might be, an, it used to be, back in the day, that would have been an NCAA violation. You can't take a free trip unless you're competing. But, you know, is not starting to me, though, it's more admirable and more sporting just to say we're not competing, don't tow the start line, than it is to tow the start line and jog. Apparently, I mean, apparently the Yale fans were booing these kids as they finished the finish line. So to me, it's a little bit different, but I see he's like, hey, you came down to Jab and Jim four years ago and blew off the meat. We had all our guys in it. I'm going to do the same to you. So, you know, there was a COVID case. There was, we don't want to blow the eligibility. These guys are we're not that deep this year. We've really struggled in the season. I understand the, the the logic behind it, but to me, if they're towing the line, they need to compete. Now, what does that mean? I'll fully admit, first meet of the year, I used to tell my guys we'd have an, a dual meet with Army. I'm like, run the first mile at 520 pace, tempo the first mile, then race. You know, so am I? I mean, some level, I'm, they're not going all out, but I think their time would probably be pretty similar. We used to do that. I heard even teams like Lehigh's now racing Syracuse and the guys are tempoing against Syracuse because they don't want to go too tired. So I get it. It's a slippery slope, but it's like, how do you define pornography? How do you define crossing the line? This to me is clearly crossing the line. Maybe 2019 Harvard was also antithetical to the spirit of competition and unsporting behavior, but this one All clearly right. is as well. This is altogether too much time to have spent on a September Ivy League cross-country try meet, but Weldon, if you do have a final point you'd like to make, Here's your chance. Who knew that I was going to go to some controversial try meet? I was there. I'm not sure I heard booing, but I wasn't really paying attention. I was trying to get my daughter back home after the meet was over. Big picture. It sounds like Yale has never tanked. We don't tank. We win, baby. Thank you. Congrats to Owen Karras, the champion. I just wish this didn't happen. I think tradition should mean something. And I think... You know, in a track meet, if someone like doesn't go all out in one event to focus on another, am I fine like that? Probably. But if you're in the meet, you should be competing hard at the end. I'm sorry. That's how it should work. This shouldn't happen again. It's a bad look. Yeah, I mean, I know you said the roster issues, what Robert, with Fidge not having certain guys available, but this is a classic. When I was in college, you would have meets that the A team went to and the B team went to. This is a classic meet. You throw out, you eight through 12 or 12 through 16 or whatever, they compete hard and everyone is satisfied. One or two last comments. I, I think it could be argued that, I mean, I used to always argue that schools like Dartmouth and 
all these other Ivy schools that they didn't compete all out even at the Ivy League championships. They never doubled or tripled their stars like we did at Cornell. So I, it's like, what do you define as competing? At, at Cornell, we won as many damn points as we could. We doubled, tripled our guys. Some of these schools that have no, they have no shot at the, at the conference meet. Abby D'Agostino didn't always run five events. She would just run a couple, and then the O'Neill twins get ready for get ready for NCAs. You know, and actually at Harvard, come on, no one thinks that Yale's a better cross country team than Harvard. Harvard got spanked by Yale in this meet. Graham Blanks, their All American, the superstar, was actually at the meet. Coach Gibby was going to run him. Then he took a look at the course and he thought there was a lot of sharp turns. He's like with roots. He's like, nope, not risking it for you. So Harvard kind of tanked the meet themselves. But to me, it's just a lot different. You got if you're going to run, you've got to tr- give some effort. I mean, maybe not. I mean, it's like, what is 100? Oh, Robert didn't run 100% from start to finish. <laughs> Shout out to the podcast listeners. I guess we had a podcast guest tanking this meet. Sorry you're in that situation. <laughs> you did what authority told you to do. But some of the Yale guys are podcast listeners. It was a good week for the podcast. It should continue to be a good week. I expect to see some podcast listeners out in Eugene for the Diamond League final. All right. We had a world record this weekend. It wasn't the 2000 meters. That was a women's only world record. So, you know, it's not the fastest times ever run by women, but it was two in one race. Remind me of Jocelyn Jep Cosguy did this a few years ago. Uh, Agnes and Gedich, who I will admit I was not overly familiar with before this weekend, even though she got bronze at World Cross in February and was sixth in the 10K at Worlds in August. She went to the Transylvania. 10K. I I assume this was some typo because it's in Romania and it's you know Transylvania's out there, but apparently it's Transylvania, Transylvania International 10K in Brazov, Romania. And she said a women's only world record in the 10 10K, 29, 24 on the roads, and also in the 5K, 1425. She went out. Her early splits are absolutely crazy. I got sent these by Tim Hutchings, who was there calling the race, courtesy of Helmut Winter, the brilliant German timer. 5K and 14.25, so that's 28.50 pace. Her first 3K was 8.27. How many Americans can run 8.27 for a full 3,000 meters? This is what she did in her first 3K of a 10K road race. That was 28.10 pace through 3K. So she went out insanely fast. Probably could have gotten the overall overall world record, which is 29.14 by Y squared, if she paced it a little bit smarter. What a pr- crazy performance. But then I'm thinking about this. I'm like, okay, if Agnes and Gedich could do this, who was something of an afterthought in the world championships. I mean, she, she lost to Alicia Monson at Worlds in the 10K. Granted, it was a bit slower race. I'm like, if she can do this, this world record probably should be actually a lot faster because you don't have someone like Sagai or Gade or Edgegayu Taye or Safan Hassan going after it. But that's not to knock. I mean, 29-24 and 14-20, after a 14-25 first 5K, still pretty terrific, terrific performance. I just don't get how her track times aren't faster. I wonder if she's coming into form or not. I mean, she was only 14. Her track PB is 14.36 for ninth in Paris this year. So when I saw this time, uh, full disclosure, I was I didn't really think, oh, this is the world bronze medalist. I was like, man, this is... My initial thought was, 
this is going to show you why like Grant Fisher and Alicia Monson then will never meddle because if some no-name African can run this fast, like imagine what the people on the team can do. And then I looked up her profile and it made me appreciate Alicia Monson all the more. Like Alicia Monson beat this woman. Alicia Monson was fifth. Ingenich was sixth. Beat her by like two seconds at Worlds. So you're like, and she went out in 827. Well, Alicia Monson's 3,000 PB is 826 something. So I don't know if she's just like, started off injured and is slowly getting in better shape, but this makes me a appreciate Alicia Monson and B just realize there's a lot of talent out there. So good run for her. Well, it might be. She's just inconsistent. I don't know. Like third at world cross is obviously incredible, but then yeah, track season somewhat like she was second in the 10, 10 Kenyan 10 K trials, but she only ran eight thirty two in the 3000 in Oslo. That's her personal best on the track. And she went out in eight twenty seven for this race. So, I don't know. Maybe it's just she's still sort of, she's 23. Maybe she's just inconsistent. I don't know. It's kind of hard to explain how you can do 1436 and 832 and then you run 2924 on the roads. But look at her times in other years. 2018, she ran 1558 in Cambridge, Massachusetts, John. 2019, 1556. These are her seasonal best times. 2021-1507-2022-1518-2022-1518-2022-1518-2022-1518-2022-1518-2022-1518-2022-1518-2022-1518-2022-1518-2022-1518-2022-1518-2022-1518-2022-1518-2022-1518-2022-1518-2022-1
Oh, wow, John. I did. I talked to Brian Schrader after the race about that, by the way, and he basically said, like, you know, he thought that was his best shot to make the team and kind of made sense to me. He's like, if I can run 209, I'm on the team and didn't happen. But that was the reference I was making, which you clearly didn't pick up on. Thank you. Reply here by Go Big or Go Home Devastated says, the purists will say run your best race and take pride in finishing the best place you can. However, your true friends will tell you to roll the dice. Lead the first half on rocket fuel pace and be that douchey white guy who wears a Kenyan singlet. If when you drop out, make it dramatic. Do it before the chase pack gets to you so it doesn't look like you outdid yourself, got caught, and just gave up. Have a limo waiting for you at the predetermined location, steeplechase leap over a course barrier, dive straight into the getaway car, and don't post a single run on Strava until January 13th, 2025, when Shelby Houlihan's doping ban expires. The more questions your dropout produces, the better. Sort of random, crazy post there. 451 upvotes. I've never seen one with that many upvotes, I don't think. Six downvotes. So fans of Let's Run want chaos. I think the person's offered to wear a Let's Run shirt or singlet in the race as well. I'm all for it. Now, people are going to call me a hypocrite. I'm sure Jason Vigilani's like, you call this, you just went on a rant about unsporting behavior. I'm all for this. Like, a, you'll help set the pace. Like he said, he talked about running a 64 minute help. Set the pace at the Olympic standard. You know? And I remember back in the day when I was injured a lot and Walden was running in college, I thought if I ever get healthy, when I get in a race, I will just make myself stay in the lead damn pack. I will just stay up there, stay up there, stay up there. That's what you're doing. You're not making a mockery of the competition. I, I can kind of see why people don't like it and think it's unsporting, but most people were, I mean, it was like 30 to one. We're saying, go do it, buddy. Go do it. Well, I mean, he is kind of making a mockery of the competition, exiting in a limo, doing all this stuff. He's clearly has no intention of trying to actually no, that get wasn't... his best result. But at the, sa- at the same time, I'm thinking of them as like, if we have good conditions for marathon in Orlando, it might be hard to get a big lead on the, the pack because people are going to be trying to hit that time. We're probably going to have some people who either haven't hit the 211.30 or maybe there might be, it might be possible someone needs to get the 208 Olympic standard. So it might be hard to drop people in this Olympic trials, but would it be, would it be entertaining? Would this guy go down as a message board legend? Absolutely. Uh, I don't know whether I want to see it or not, but it would be entertaining. Maybe he doesn't need to get a big lead, but yeah, what would be wrong if we told someone, hey, we'll sponsor people to wear Let's Run singlets to run with the lead pack as long as they can? Is that unsporting? No, you're giving your best effort for as long as you can. You could easily argue. In 2000, when I made my big breaks for a 10K, John Kellogg sent me to Stanford. My instructions were run up front as long as you can. Then drop out, essentially. There is nothing wrong with that. If you're saying my best way to make the Olympic team is to hang with the lead pack until I can't hang with them anymore, that I have no issue with that at all. So this Stanford thing, I I made it like four miles. I made it longer than I thought, and then I was just was done. So is that unsporting? I ran as hard as I could for four miles. No, because you're running as hard as you can. I think jumping into the limo or running ahead, I guess, the more I think about it, is kind of bushly because you're taking the cameras away from the lead guys, but maybe we should do it now. We, we create, I've always said this, we, we can start, again, people might ask, is this unsporting? We can start tampering with these world marathon majors 
just we we're the ones that hire the the rabbits every year for New York and Boston. We get the new the let's run singlets and we just or the trials like here. All right, what's the standard, John? That they need. We're putting the pace at that. Go with it or not. That's the pace you need, or whatever you need to get. Like we figure out what what time people need to run to get in world ranking. You know, we're going to make sure it's a two ten race. And I think as long as you're running like with the lead pack, you know, if you're in the lead pack, why not be on TV? You're blocking the wind for everybody else, anyways. All right. Speaking of the Olympic marathon trials, final thing I wanted to hit on this. Interesting story last week. Jim Estes, who's on the USATF board, is suing USATF, Max Siegel, who's the CEO, and Renee Washington, who's the COO, for negligence and defamation per se and invasion of privacy. And for the backstory on this thing, it goes to the awarding of the 2024 Olympic trials. Back in November, they went to Orlando on the same day they were awarded to Orlando, Max Siegel wrote a letter to the Chattanooga Sports Commission. Chattanooga was the only other city bidding for the trials, saying they were disqualified because of conflicts of interest involving Jim Estes, who had accepted a position with the Chattanooga bid. He disclosed this conflict of interest in May 2022, shortly after he accepted the position. USATF didn't realize it until the end of July 2022. And then they didn't really seem to care about it until the end of September when Adam Schmank, kind of, who's with the USATF, he's in their events department, kind of noticed, oh, wait, Jim Estes is here? What do you, like, don't you have a, you know, he's on the USATF board. They kind of noticed it. Then there was an investigation with USOPC. And the whole way it ended up playing out, what it looked like was, USATF and Max Siegel kind of wanted to just, they made Jim Estes into a scapegoat as to why this bid had been disqualified. As opposed to Jim Estes's side of the story was, well, I actually tried to do everything I was supposed to. I told you I had this conflict of interest. I followed all your directions and you're still putting the blame on me. This was the whole back and forth story. And now Jim Estes is suing them because he believes his reputation in the running world has been harmed. If he US he says USATF is placing the blame on him for the reason the Chattanooga bid was disqualified. He says that's harmed his professional represent reputation. And he's coming out and like, actually it wasn't me. USATF was negligent. Renee Washington was negligent because they didn't pick up on my conflict of of uh of interest disclosure when I made it very promptly after taking this position. So Robert, what do you make of all this? I love this, and I hope that Jim wins his lawsuit. I think that he will win his lawsuit. I think it'll be settled probably beforehand, but I hope that he doesn't take the money and goes all the way, gets discovery, and really embarrasses Max Siegel. I find it incredibly ironic that Max Siegel um, is citing a conflict of an interest for a reason to disqualify this Chattanooga page. I mean, this is a guy, according to the Washington Post, Max Siegel, under Max Siegel's watch, USATF has awarded hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of business to an Indianapolis marketing firm that once advertised itself as a Max Siegel company. For this guy to act like that he's a, 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 a man of virtue and totally uncompromised, has no conflict of interest, is laughable. So I'm surprised Chattanooga doesn't also join the lawsuit and sue because 
they hired, they're trying to get the Olympic trials. They don't know a lot about running. They, who, what do you do? You hire someone who's an expert in running. Jim, Jim Estes has been involved with USATF, wanted to run for a long time. He discloses this conflict of interest to USATF. They're so poorly run, even though they have a $3 million a year CEO, that they don't do anything on it. And then at the last minute, they sort of make this, one could argue that they panicked and then the, the Paralympics are worried about a conflict of interest and they just disqualify him. Or maybe they made us up as the reason to do, to disqualify the Chattanooga bid. It raises a lot of questions to me because Siegel just did what he wanted in 2020 or 2016, yeah, 20, 2016 when he put the bid in LA. So I don't believe, well, I, I don't know. I, I really hope that we don't get an early settlement. I hope that he keeps pushing to get discovery. And I hope that more information comes out from Max Siegel because I don't know. I would like to know the details of how he discloses. Did he just update some form? You know, like you have it on the server and you just update it. Or did he like update the form and then send like, Hey Renee, here's my updated form. You know what I'm saying, John? Yeah, I don't know the nuts and bolts of how that process works. Uh, I would hope that there's a system in place where when you update something like that, someone is alerted to it. Because how they first found out about this conflict of interest is he took a position as a COO of USA, of USA Badminton in like July 2022. And they noticed that at the time. And that's when they actually noticed, oh, he's also on this Chattanooga bit. So that's when they became aware of it. I assume there's some sort of mechanism there in place. But the... The thing if they knew uh, the, if they knew it in July, then why did they freak out when he was helping? Like he was helping when, when they were touring Chattanooga. That's when they got mad. That, like oh, but Jim's touring the people and around. We don't think that's right. So Adam Shank had him stop, which makes sense to me. I can see why you wouldn't want him to do that. But they were told in July at a minimum. They knew it all in July, and then they don't act on it, and then wait, let Chattanooga waste all this money, all these resources, and then hand it to Orlando. So. Yeah, well, that's that's the question. That's why he's saying it was negligence, and that's why he's saying, you know, this wasn't... He's like, look, I followed the directions. You guys basically just said, hey, sit tight, and we'll advise you moving forward, and they never really advised him to do anything. He was recusing himself from discussions when the trials came up in board meetings. Yeah, the whole thing that kind of strikes me as weird about this story is if Max Siegel had just come out in November of 2022 and said, hey, we're awarding the trials to Orlando. We think it's a better host than Chattanooga for these reasons. You know, we think more people will come or we think it'll get more publicity or whatever. Whatever his justification is for having an Orlando, just say that. You don't need to DQ Chattanooga and say, oh, you know, we had to give it all to Orlando because of this. There was a board vote and they recommended unanimously the trials go to Chattanooga, but Max Seal doesn't need to listen to that. He's a CEO. Oh my God, I this is worse than I thought. I totally forgot that. So the board, like they did in 2016, unanimously picks one side. In this case, they picked Chattanooga. In 2016, they pick Houston. Max Siegel doesn't like that decision. So basically the dictator decides I'm moving it somewhere else. And he just, I would say, makes up this excuse about the conflict of interest. There's no reason to disqualify Chattanooga. Max, if you want, the, if you want it in, in, in Orlando and you've got the power to do it, You've got to fess up to that. You don't defame somebody. This seems to me like a clear cut of defamation per se. And Jim, I hope you win this lawsuit. I really do. 
I don't know enough about the legalese to say whether this is a clear case of defamation. I, my prediction is this lawsuit will probably be settled. But what I will say is, yeah, Max Siegel, if you're going to award the trials to Orlando, I, I just, most people just want some explanation for it. I guess the explanation they're saying is, oh, it was this conflict of interest. But I think a lot of people are pretty skeptical about that because of the way it was handled and because it really didn't seem an issue for several months. I think if you just want to say, hey, we're giving the trials to Orlando because of X, Y, and Z reason, you know, not everyone's going to agree with it, but at least they would view it as more transparent as what's happening here. And it wouldn't have resulted in a lawsuit, I don't think. Hey, this whole thing is nuts. The board, two different years, has recommended another site for the Olympic marathon trials, and Max Siegel overruled them in one case, and in this case, they got the recommendation disqualified. But if Max Siegel can make the ultimate decision anyway, why even bother with the disqualification stuff? Now, point of clarification, the USOPC supported USATF in this disqualification, saying all board members have a duty to avoid these types of conflicts, they wrote to Runner's World. In this case, Estes believed incorrectly that he could satisfy his duties and obligations as a board member by recusing himself for any discussions of the bidding process. I still don't think that the, the remedy, though, is to like disqualify the bid. If anything, you say, Jim, at this point, you either need to leave the board or continue with the advising thing. Like It had already happened. He disclosed it. USATF, I feel like, is still the one that dropped the ball. They should have said, no, this, he denotes the conflict, and then they need to say, okay, you either need to leave the board or continue working with Chattanooga. Like, I don't know, but, but you don't then at, later disqualify the bid. Like, man. And there's, everyone has conflicts on that board. A lot of them, the ones who are in, in the sport of running, you know, a lot of the, some of the board members are outside of the sport of running, but just like, it makes no sense. Other big picture, USATF has spent a lot of money on legal fees. Remember the youth committee? They suspended the entire youth committee in Lionel Leach. They sued Everybody at Lionel Leach got reinstated, I believe. Just legal fees have been spent, been going out the door left and right, and Max Siegel's been getting paid a ton of money. I don't think it's the best well-run organization. To, to be clear, USATF, they did provide a statement to Let's Run on this. They said they vehemently reject the baseless allegations presented in this lawsuit. Uh, they said they intend to wholeheartedly and vigorously fight this lawsuit, will not allow this action and, to distract from the historic trajectory of USATF and Team USATF under Max and Renee's leadership. I mean, what the, what the tr team does on the track is very different from this. And I guess also the question, should Jim Estes leave the board? He's now suing USATF, so his personal interests are different from that of the organization. So I, I think that... I sort of think if he's going to have this lawsuit, maybe he should leave the board because... His interests are at conflicts with USATF. Now, he would say, maybe say, like, no, I, I want the best for this organization. I shouldn't have to leave because they wronged me, but I, I don't know about that. I think maybe he should resign. I think that's his argument. He's like, I just want to get back to doing what I was doing, and I want to still have my reputation intact. He's, his lawyer told me it was, this is all about, like, re-securing his personal reputation, and they haven't settled on a specific dollar figure that looking for in damages or anything like that. So 
I don't know. But anyway, yeah, that's that's the uh, Jay Metastas lawsuit saga. Well, I think that's going to do it for this episode. We will have some sort of Friday 15 or post-meet show, some bonus show for our Supporters Club members from Eugene this weekend from the Diamond League final. So stay tuned we, for updates on that. We might have a post-press conference show. You never know what you're going to get in the Supporters Club. Join today, let'srun.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you haven't made the switch to fiber internet, you need to do so today. Frontier Internet is where it's at. You know, they're not every state nationwide, but if you've heard of Frontier, it's probably where you are. Go to let'srun.com slash fiber to sign up today and support Let's Run at the same time. I got one gig in my house. It's amazing. With YouTube TV, you can get direct TV, you can get all the cable channels still. I mean, you can get Sunday tickets, excuse me, cable channels. You're not giving up anything. It's better internet. I love it. All right, Robert. All right, John.